Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, we are going to talk about agri and farming cooperatives, why they are important if we are to ensure farmers across the world have the support and security to prosper and grow. And also why there is still so much to learn in terms of cooperatives and how to make them successful. I am joined today by Mark Blackett, who's the Global Network Director heading up the Agribusiness Market Ecosystem Alliance, also known as EMEA, and Helena Eshetu, who's EMEA's Ethiopian Regional Network Facilitator. Mark and Helena are going to share their insights into how to better support cooperatives, what the roles of bigger businesses are, and why the stability of cooperatives will bring vital help when tackling climate change. As Mark says, we need to transform the way in which farmer organisations are supported to find ways to move from unhealthy competition to collaboration and build a system together that can really deliver. So Mark, Helena, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, it's good to start this conversation with you guys today. Um, Mark, I wanted to open up this conversation. You guys at EMEA, you have been thinking about farmers, agribusinesses and their kind of experiences sort of at a global and local level. I wondered whether you could take us through and explain some of the kind of key challenges and opportunities that are facing uh, these agribusinesses at the moment. Well, I mean, as we know, I mean, it's, it's very challenging times. I mean, hopefully we are starting to come out of those challenging times. But indeed, I mean, it's, um, it's been a big challenge for agribusinesses and farmers. I mean, the uh, global economy as well as the local economies have been very volatile. And, and farmers, who often are the ones managing the, the most risk in the value chain, it's even riskier for them. They don't know where the orders are coming from. They uh, therefore don't know what to plant. You know, they're, they're gambling even more than they, they do um, in normal times. Um, and the agribusinesses who are obviously also trying to manage that supply chain and are wondering about like, what stocks to hold and, and what uh, trading prices they're going to receive, they also have challenges uh, in terms of managing that volatile demand as well as volatile supply. And, um, and I'm sure there's been uh, plenty of losses in those agribusinesses as well which um, is, is never helpful when like, the market contracts and there's less competition. And Helena, you're based in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Are the experiences pretty much shared in that location as well as, as what we've heard from Mark there? Yes, I would say that they are. I mean, I think in addition to the things that Mark has said that I think are applicable across the board, there are some more unique opportunities and challenges when you look at the co-op sector in Ethiopia. But firstly, in terms of opportunities, it's a big sector. There are over 80,000 cooperatives in the country, and most of them are agricultural. That means that for the most part, farmers have the opportunity to be part of a cooperative, although a lot of them are not necessarily fully functional or able to provide the full benefits to their members. And this is because they tend to have low levels of professionalism, partially because their staff are 
volunteers from the community who have little formal education. They're not really trained to take on this role. Although in some areas, especially where cash crops are produced, so cash crops like coffee, sesame, malt barley, you see much stronger cooperatives operating at higher levels of professionalism. And the government of Ethiopia definitely sees cooperatives as a priority. They are the primary vehicle for smallholder farmer commercialization, and so they get quite a lot of focus, including a large, a comprehensive approach to capacity building that's currently being implemented by the federal cooperatives agency. On the other hand, this kind of centralized administration system does pose some challenges to, to the cooperatives. For example, inputs like seeds and fertilizer that cooperatives are how farmers access these inputs, but the difficulty of data gathering makes it difficult to gauge just how much this demand is. So it's because of this that the amounts of inputs needed by each cooperative are really determined by administrators at the district level. And this doesn't always actually match the needs of farmers in the area. But given the size of the co-op sector as a whole, there are many players in the space, a lot of them working on capacity building, also have relationships with each other. Uh, you would say that, I, I would say that strong relationships exist between both government institutions and development actors. And there's a growing awareness that there's a need to engage the private sector more. And definitely, like Mark mentioned, COVID-19 has created a lot of operational disruptions for cooperatives, especially because there were some market and transport restrictions put into place. But it looks like they're bouncing back quickly now that these restrictions have been lifted. And Helena, sticking with you, I mean, I'm fairly ignorant to, the, to these sorts of things, and, and I want you to sort of paint, paint me a picture if you don't mind. What does a cooperative look like in the agribusiness sector, particularly in Ethiopia? And, and then sort of, you know, how do they work? What are the benefits to being in a cooperative? I would say that if you look at a, a typical cooperative in Ethiopia, it's going to be multi-purpose, but focused on just one or two crops in the area. So the crops that farmers tend to be growing in that area. It's, like I mentioned earlier, run by volunteers so who tend to be farmers themselves. If they have professional staff, those staff tend to be restricted to you know, roles that have financial responsibilities, for example, accountants or something like that. So mostly run by, by the uh, members, volunteers from the community. They tend to have both input distribution and aggregation responsibilities. So I would say the primary benefits for a, mar a farmer being a member of a cooperative would be, one, accessing inputs. There's almost no other way really for them to access inputs in a lot of areas. These are distributed through a public sector system. There are, in some cases, private distributors of inputs like uh, fertilizer and agrochemicals, but uh, these aren't necessarily as well regulated, and also they tend not to be affordable to farmers. And then on the output aggregation side, definitely the cooperative will provide, in some cases, transportation, the aggregation facilities, storage, and things like that. So farmers can just bring their produce and the cooperative will take care of that rather than farmers trying to go directly to market, which has a lot of challenges. So I would say those are the major benefits. But then these vary quite widely. If you look at cooperatives who are, who are producing crops that are just, you know, in demand in that area that aren't really cash crops versus those that are more uh, commercially viable like coffee. So you tend to see that in the coffee sector, cooperatives and cooperatives unions are much stronger. 
have a lot more capital, a lot more professionalism, are more well networked, and also run by professionals who are trained for the role. Cool. And then, Mark, bringing you in here, I mean, you guys at EMEA, you've been working really hard to bring together development organizations, foundations, businesses to really kind of support that kind of inclusive agribusiness and, and their initiatives. What's the system change that's actually needed and, and how can collaborations like yourselves and to grow it and looking sort of bigger and broader realise these potential sort of opportunities? I mean, we would advocate quite you know, very strongly for something called the EMEA framework, which is basically it's a, a system approach for measuring the progress of a farm organisation or agribusiness to in terms of its level of professionalism. You know, it's, its ability to manage its human resources, financial resources, essentially deliver to the market the quality and the quantity that it has committed to and delivers like the, the services to members, which allows them to save costs, to deliver that quality and quantity and make a much better return because that's what's required, a much better return in order to really incentivize uh, people to invest in, in agriculture and and generate that inclusive growth because a lot of a lot of farmers are living on the margins and farming is certainly not their only business and there's a good reason for that farming just doesn't deliver a, a living income in all sorts of crop sectors from the more mature ones which is helena's describing like coffee and and obviously cocoa to the food crop sector and mark sticking with you i mean you've been yeah, we're Business Fights Poverty. That's, that's the name of the podcast. It's the organization that we are. What would be your advice to those within business? How can they better support um, the agribusinesses that you're working with or the kind of the collaboration that needs to take place? We are building a network of like-minded members and partners who want to uh, uh, test out the most effective approaches and find ways to scale them up. So we move beyond this um, portfolio of thousands of projects doing all sorts of different approaches of which farmer organizations they're, they're at the center of this they're the ones that have to face these numerous projects coming to them every two or three years with different approaches and and they have to navigate their way through that and find the best outcome for for themselves if instead so i can know these projects and the partners um, for these farmer organizations and cooperatives if these people actually came with more consistent joined up approaches, then I'm sure the farmer organizations would be far happier and it just would be more cost efficient and much more effective because you're building on something rather than just replacing it with another project with a, a different set of approaches. So our, the, the system change that we're advocating for is that the, there is this sort of joined up systemic approach right across public and private sector, because we know private sector can't do it on its own. You know, your Cargills, your Olams, the, you know, these sort of people of the world, there's limits to what they can do. There needs to be a good ecosystem in place, which generates a pipeline of professional farm organizations, which these big agribusinesses can partner with and share the value with. So that's, that's, that's what we're advocating for. And that's why we invest in a so uh, what we call the EMEA toolbox, which is basically the tools that have been proven to be most effective based on the knowledge that we have at this point in time. And then that's what I would say to agribusinesses, start to invest in those tools like Cargill is doing with IFC, like Heineken is doing with IFC, 
and then we will see we will see a change. And if you had a kind of crystal ball then, Mark, and you were looking into the future, if a mayor's, you know, work is done, what does success actually look like? No, I mean, that would be the public sector has a system for really providing data on cooperatives and farm organisations that's useful for a variety of stakeholders. The private sector, the agribusinesses that the offtakers and the sort of importers and retailers, as well as the um, financial sector, as well as the cooperative sector itself, uh, in terms of its um, understanding where those cooperatives are at and, and what sort of interventions are going to be effective for different segments of that cooperative sector. Because quite often we use a one brush uh, approach, and, and of course that doesn't work. And if you look right now, if, if, say, for example, you went into Ethiopia or you, any other country in Africa where there's a large amount of development projects, the data you will find on the cooperative sector, it's numbers of cooperatives, it's numbers of thousands of farmers in cooperatives, it doesn't tell you anything about the performance. And what we know is that the performance is not good. I mean, so like you, I, there was a continental African bank which went into one of the countries, which I won't name. And, and the, their conclusion was that, was that 90% of cooperatives were unbankable. Now, if that's the state of the cooperative sector, then clearly we're not doing things the right way. I mean, you don't expect 100% success, but you don't expect 90% failure, do you? So I, I think we, we've got to invest in those systemic approaches where the public sector has data that is useful for driving the sector forward and invest in effective approaches to build the pipeline of professional farmer organizations and the agribusiness sector also has effective approaches to take them on from that pipeline and really sort of, you know, partner in a long-term way, which, which generates value on both sides. And Helena, from your perspective, does that, does that ring true to what you're seeing on the ground or is there sort of another sort of edge to that? No, absolutely. It it definitely rings true. And I think, I mean, there's two things there. There's the issue of getting data, usable data, accurate data, which is a big challenge in itself. Um, I think in Ethiopia, the remoteness a lot of a lot of cooperatives, the fact that they aren't always necessarily keeping detailed records of their own transactions, of their own members, the fact that there aren't effective systems for data gathering, the fact that there's very little technology being employed make it all very challenging to get that data in the first place. And then I think, like Mark was saying, if you do have the data, the picture it paints is, is really quite a concerning one. It's, it's of cooperatives that aren't necessarily bankable or able to access the, the financing that they need in a lot of ways. In some cases, they may be, but there isn't really a way for the cooperatives to speak to financial institutions or other lenders to demonstrate this. So part of it is also just about creating those linkages, creating a language that is commonly understood and, you know, from the cooperative side, what they need to do to become more bankable and from the lender side to really understand what a bankable cooperative looks like so that you can make that connection. So certainly I, I, I definitely agree. And I think that's very true in Ethiopia as well. And we're recording this podcast sort of in the lead up to the COP that's taking place in Glasgow at the end of 2021. And I was just wondering, clearly, the farmers and the cooperatives that you guys are working with are pretty vulnerable in terms of climate shocks and requirements to 
prepare for create resilience to climate change. What do you see in terms of action that needs to be taken? And and how are you guys thinking about climate in terms of the work and the, the people that you're working with? A lot of people talk about resiliency and bouncing back better, they talk about as well. I mean, you can only do that if you've got relatively strong social capital and and reasonably strong institutions that create that social capital. And cooperatives, farm organizations, you know, sort of agricultural sort of enterprises that operate in the in these communities where people are vulnerable, they are a huge part of creating that social capital and and creating that resiliency to to sort of climate shocks and 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 eventually sort of creating a of a livelihood that um, that is viable for for people, and and I think that's that's our underlying message. I mean, if if you don't get the foundation right, then you can't expect to get the good, the results that you want to see. We believe that so like strong farm organisations, strong cooperatives, are that foundation, and that, and that's why we we talk about something that. It isn't the most attractive thing to talk about. It, it, everybody's been talking about farm organization development for 40 years, but we haven't got it right yet. And that's why we keep talking about it, because it is so fundamental to addressing so the, the issues that people will talk about in, in the next uh, COP in, in Glasgow. To Mark's final point about having talked about cooperative development for 40 years and us not making much progress. I would I would say this is exactly the reason why EMEA exists. We are here because we see that the, the current approaches are very fragmented. The ecosystem isn't functioning really like an ecosystem. It's a lot of different actors implementing a lot of different approaches and not necessarily talking to each other. So I think everybody has a very good understanding of what the challenges are, but the solutions are being formulated independently. And so there's a lot of repetition and duplication of effort, and it's difficult to make progress in this sense. So I, I think really just bringing everybody together to, to talk about the issues which we know exist, but formulating sol- solutions collectively is the way forward, whether that's specific to, to addressing climate issues and resilience or beyond that. I, I think the approach needs to be that. I can probably give you an example if you'd, if you'd like as well. Absolutely. I always want examples. <laughs> good, good. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this and um, one of the better examples that, that um, we've got within EMEA, I think, is um, uh, an EMEA member, Ricolto, which was a, a founding member. They've been using the EMEA tools for the last five years and, and it's become part of their standard approach to, to sort of, you know, doing development projects. But they also couple the EMEA tools with other things such as working with the sustainable rice standard, which is a, a, you know, it's a big platform with all the big agribusinesses in there. And, and it's, um, it is a systemic approach to try and get it's like sustainable rice like, uh, being grown in uh, all around the world. And, and one project they, they've done recently, I mean, they demonstrated that by investing in the farmer organization and having a, a functional, reasonably professional farmer organization, as well as introducing the sustainable rice standard approach, you end up with results such as, you know, a 56% reduction in methane, a 59% reduction in seed costs, you know, so like consistent quality, which then can be sold at better prices. And people, so like, you know, uh, testifying, you know, that their income 
has increased dramatically. School fees are getting paid, all those sort of things. And you've got a professional, well, let's say a reasonably professional farm organization, because I'm sure they've got more to, to work on, who are able to manage a loan of $85,000, which, which that's a, a reasonable achievement for a farmer organization. And, and that's where we've got to get to with, with a lot of the farmer organizations, enable to them to, to sort of generate the economic returns. But also, they, we can see you ca- that follows on in terms of the uh, environmental outcomes as well. Good example there. Thank you, Mark, for coming in with that. And I will try to get maybe a link to a case study that goes with that so that we can put it into the words that sit alongside um, the podcast, just in case anybody wants to follow up um, with that who's who's listening to the podcast today. Um, To round off our conversation, I'm curious what you see as sort of what's next, both for you guys personally and also for EMEA. I think for EMEA, we know we're still early on in that journey. I mean, it is a bit frustrating that you sort of look back and sort of say, oh, there's been 40 years of this journey at least. I mean, arguably much, much longer as well. But the way that we've explained it today in terms of it being a very fragmented, disjointed sector that doesn't have systemic approaches means we're still at an early stage on the journey. So, I mean, we, we certainly see our work, you know, continuing through this decade, let's put it that way, in order to sort of create conditions like in, in different countries around the world where systemic approaches are taken up. And, and eventually, of course, so like, you know, once, once people really buy into this and they take it on, then there isn't a need for a mayor. So, so in the end, we want to be out of business, but we don't see it immediately. So certainly in 2022, it'll be about producing evidence of what is working and what should be so like, you know, uh, good approaches for different countries to take up and, and working with those countries and agribusinesses within those countries to, to sort of... Uh, encourage that that take up of, of more systemic approaches and personally yes that's that's going to be I, I will be in the UK I guess for for the time being but uh, you never know I might be back to Africa at some point where I spent most of the last 20 years. Just to pick up on what Mark mentioned about Amea being in the early stages I the exciting part of that for me is that there is so much yet to learn and quite a lot to contribute to because it is an evolving network. It's a young network. It's also a small team outside of the members, just those of us actually working at EMEA. It's quite a small team, which mean, means there's so much of an opportunity for us to shape kind of the future of EMEA. And, that, and that's very exciting. I can see how the network has evolved and, and where we're course correcting as we go along. I've been in this role for a about a year and a half now, but I did know Amea for about another year before that in my previous role. And I, and I think the more time I spend, the more I get into my stride in this role, partly because in my current position as a regional network facilitator, it does take time, quite a lot of time to build mutual understanding and trust between myself and the members and the partners, because this work is highly dependent on interpersonal relationships. So. I do feel there's more of an opportunity to exercise autonomy in the role and, and be more confident in, in what I can contribute to the network. And personally, I, you know, I think I have tried since the COVID pandemic to really see the silver lining and to adjust. And obviously, I haven't been able to travel for work, and I do miss that. I miss being able to visit projects out in the field. 
But I find that working remotely does offer the opportunity to do some personal travel because I can work from anywhere. So I think more travel is on the horizon for me personally. Yeah, and just to add on the end of that, it's very, very good to see that uh, the red list countries has been dramatically reduced and, and Ethiopia is no longer on the red list. So you never know, Ethiopia could be on the travel list soon for me. Yeah, fingers crossed for us all to be able to actually talk to each other one-to-one and face-to-face. Oh, wouldn't it be amazing? Well, um, that rounds off the end of our um, conversation today. Mark, Alina, thank you so much for giving your time and sharing so openly the work that you guys are doing with Amir. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been uh, a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this discussion as well. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.